I think we have to say, got it. Okay. So, uh, hello everyone, and uh, welcome to the Chagura. And thank you for joining us for a new and unique series with our Rosh Bet Midrash, Senior Rabbi of the S&P, Communities of the UK, Rabbi Joseph Dweck. In this three-part series titled Misconceptions 2.0, we will unpack and offer a perspective on key terms and concepts in our Torah. Specifically tonight, we will be diving into Judaism, religion, and Torah. In Chaburah News, we are excited to soon be launching a new name for our publishing house alongside a new book on the Midrashim and Agadot of Chazal. So I highly recommend all to join our WhatsApp announcement groups uh, to stay updated. I also highly recommend all to become a member of the Chabura and be able to not only take full advantage of our content and events, but to also be able to support our very important initiatives. Uh, with that said, thank you all for joining us in person in London and from around the world on Zoom and all those who will be watching after on YouTube. Uh, so thank you for joining us and thank you so much, Chacham, for being with us. The floor is yours. Thank you, Ravohad. It's a pleasure and honor always. I want to not only to uh, welcome all of the Habura students, lovely to be able to sit and learn with everybody again, but also the, the Montefiore Endowment uh, Diploma course and all that all of those who are who are here to learn together in person and online. And I want to thank especially uh, Lucien Gabay for giving us the opportunity to collaborate this way, which is wonderful. We should be doing, these are the things that we should be doing. Baruch Hashem, and uh, this is what we mean by Yagdil Torah V'yadir. We should be able to uh, expand Torah as much. And I want to say, thank also Rabbi Sam Milinchik for uh, for preparing the for preparing the shiur and for or, arranging and organizing everything. And here maskurto shelema. All right. So the what we're going to be speaking about tonight is essentially the difference between what we would term Judaism and its relationship to Torah. And, and when we talk about Judaism, essentially what we're talking about is, I'm going to suggest a religion, right? We're talking about a, a structure of religion. And we have to be able to understand what it is, where did it come from, and how different it is from where we started when we received Torah and how Torah established things. Judaism, what we call Yehadut in Hebrew, or what we might call, you know, what, what the Ashkenazi world might call Yiddishkeit, is a construct. What I mean by that is it is intentionally manufactured, right? It was it intentionally constructed by Chazal, by the Hachamim. And one of the major reasons for its construction was that Chazal, in their, in their brilliance and their wisdom, recognized that we were destined to exile, right? So even though we already had a 70-year exile in Babylonia, right? In the Babylonian empire after the destruction of the first temple and much of what we consider to be the core underpinnings of Judaism was established while the second temple stood, there was nonetheless planning for its demise and exile. Chazal were concerned about the Jewish people losing their, uh, their hold and, and seat in the land as a nation. We're going we're gonna to unpack that more. We're going to have to understand what that means. But it is very central. In other words, the, the structure and construct of Judaism very much um, was a prep 
and secure response, or at least an, an anticipated uh, preemptive uh, element to a certain degree, uh, for the loss of manifest nationhood. And the reason I say manifest is because the nationhood never really goes away, but the trappings of nationhood, right? The paraphernalia, the structure of nationhood, the all of it was taken away. So it's very important to be able to recognize it that way. And the reason why it's important for us to be able to know the difference is because it's important for us to be able to understand what we're doing, why we're doing it, and to identify, and this is a key thing, when it veers from its appropriate structure. Now, I don't want to jump ahead, right, because of certain things, so we're going to go slow. We're going to go slow, okay? The word, let's start with the word, right? The word in Hebrew used in modern times for religion is dat, right? Dat. And when we say that somebody is dati, we essentially mean that they are observant of the religion, right? They observe the religion, the religious law and religious behaviors and so on. So I want to look at that word with you first, just to be able to orient ourselves, because it does manifest in Torah once. Once, right? It is mentioned in Torah once. It is never mentioned again, right? But, and, and it's only mentioned at the end, right? And it's mentioned in a very specific context. What is the context? The context is in the final parasha of the Torah. Moshe's final blessing to B'nai Israel. literally it comes right after V'zota Beracha Asher Barach Moshe Kol Yisrael, like Kol Yisrael. Vayomar, and he says this. And what does Moshe say? And this is the first thing on your sheets. Adonai misinai bak bezarach meseir lano. God came from Sinai, shined forth in very poetic terms from Seir to them. Saying this is God's coming from somewhere. There's some very interesting midrashim around all of this. Where is he coming from? What was he doing? Not for our purposes tonight. And what is he bringing with him? Eshdat lamo, a fiery dot in his right hand, right? Mimino, eshdat lamo. A, a, a fiery dot for them. So what is that? So I put this, unfortunately, at the end, but take a look at the end of your source sheets. So you'll see the uh, Ibn Shushan Concordancia. Nobody uses a Concordancia anymore because we have computers, but they were works, uh, they were masterful works because a concordance basically had all of the roots used in Tanakh. And, ha- and every pasuk that they were used in, and every it's nice to look at. I mean, you should have a concordancia on your shelf, nonetheless. Really, it's an appropriate thing to have on, on in, a, in a Jewish library because you can also look and see where the word manifests in all the pasukim very, very easily. And searches are usually quite poor at being able to present an exhaustive, clear visual presentation of a word. But nonetheless, in the concordancia, it uses it brings out this word that. And it says very simply at the opening, whenever it has a root, it tells you what the definition of the root is. And here it says very clearly, chok and mishpat. What is the appropriate definition of the word dat? It's law. Various aspects of law. So whereas there are different kinds of laws, there's chokim, there's mishpatim, there's edot, there's Torah, whatever it is. Dat is the broad term for, for law. 
And if you look in the Encyclopedia Talmudit, right, which I have for you over here, they talk about different kinds of dat. There's dat Moshe that we refer to, right? Hare'at mekudeshet li betabazo kedat Moshe v'Yisrael. What is dat Moshe? It says the mitzvot of the Torah, the commandments of the Torah, right? So this is interesting because the commandments of the Torah are not quite law. They are, right? But when we talk about dinim, for example, we do not usually talk about mitzvot and dinim as synonymous, right? We don't talk about, there are the mitzvot, and then there are the dinim of the mitzvot, right? So there's, uh, you know, what are the dinim of Zachor Yom HaShabbat HaKadosh? Right? So dinim are the specific applicable uh, legal requirements or obligations. The dat is the corpus, right? It's the whole, what are all the mitzvot of the Torah. So the mitzvot, but it's the mitzvot of the Torah. Right? So that is very legally oriented. Very important to recognize that. It's not all things Jewish. It's the legal aspect of the Torah. That's why in the Megillah, for example, right, we see this word come in, where Haman uses this word. And he says to Ahasuerosh, he says, by the way, there's this weird scattered people amongst your provinces they don't do the datehamelech, which is plural of dat. And what are the datehamelech? The laws of the king, meaning the, the 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 kingdom's laws. They don't follow. Yeah, that's what it is. So dat Moshe is mitzvot the Torah, and it explains further dat Moshe he kol hamitzvot hamurot Torah. It is the Umbrella term, right, is the overarching term for all the corpus of mitzvot that are presented in the Torah. Very important, again, I'm just reiterating this, important to recognize this is not the entirety of Torah. So it's very interesting, like, how the, the Torah is translated. So in all the Spanish-Portuguese prayer books, I don't know how it's done, uh, you know, in the old Ashkenazi prayer books, but in the Spanish-Portuguese prayer books, they refer to the Torah simply as the law, right? So taking the law out of the ark. Rejoicing of the law is Torah, reading of the law, and so on and so forth, which is a poor translation. It's, it's not an appropriate translation because the Torah is more than law. There is an aspect of Torah that is law, right? So the appropriate translation of Torah, which may not be as elegant, yeah, it's certainly not as elegant, we, we find a better term, right, is teaching. That's literally what Torah is. Or the instruction, yeah, which includes more than law. So um, that's, that's what we understand Dat Moshe to be. And that's why it's a sub-category uh, sub, uh, uh, of the Torah in its entirety. So there's Torah and there's Dat Moshe. And Dat Moshe is, this, is the category that basically defines, that, that labels all the mitzvot that are in the Torah. Interestingly, this is a side point. So what about the rabbinic mitzvot? That's only when you see the term dat Moshe v'Yisrael. Right? Yisrael includes the other rabbis. And dat Moshe v'Yisrael includes divrei ha'chamim as well. Okay. 
And I brought you here, it's one of my favorite dictionaries, and this is something also that everybody should have on their shelf, but it's extremely difficult to find this dictionary. It's not always available, and if it is available, it is exorbitantly priced, is the Etymological Dictionary of the Hebrew Language by Ernest Klein, uh, which is wonderful because it really is an excellent etymological dictionary of Hebrew. And he has here the word dat, and he explains it to be either a decree or law, and that's why dateh ha-melech are the decrees of the king, the laws of the king. And then the secondary definition is religion, right? Which is a modern development of the word, yeah? Which is essentially a non-Jewish development of the word, yeah? Because we have to call this religion thing something, right? There was no such thing before. Okay. So if that's the case, right, we know right off the bat that when we talk about Yahadut as a dat, that we are talking about a religion. Yeah, we're not talking about the mitzvot particularly, right? I mean, that's what dat is in itself. But when we talk about it, we're talking about a religion. What it means in this pasuk, when it says esh dat lamo, is saying the mitzvot. Hakadosh Baruch was coming to Bnei Israel and he was going to give them mitzvot, and that's very much an important part of the Torah, even though it's not the entirety of the Torah, that's a major aspect of it. And according to the Rambam, in Hilchot Avodah Zarah, right, he opens Hilchot Avodah Zarah with the story of Abraham Avinu and the development of Avodah Zarah in the world and how Abraham ended up fighting Avodah Zarah and so on and so forth, so on and so forth, goes through the whole story, Abraham, Yitzhak, Yaakov, Mitzrayim, all of that. And then he finishes it with this, which is very important, these lines. He says, Ume'ahavat Hashem Otanu. And from the love that God has for us, which is, by the way, one of the only places that the Rambam talks about God's love for us. He always talks about the need for us to love him. He almost never talks about God's love for us, which is astonishing, right? It's a very striking absence in the Rambam's work, which is unfortunate. But nonetheless, that's, this is one of the few places where the Rambam says, Hashem otanu, because HaKadosh Hu loved us, avinu, and because he swore to Avraham Avinu that he would take this nation and protect them and carry them through and so on and so forth, which is wonderful because I'm not going to unpack that more, but it's, it's lovely that this is how Rambam terms it, that, the, that there's, there was a direct love for the people. Right? It wasn't just his residual love for Avraham Avinu. Right? There was a love that HaKadosh Baruch had for us. What did he do? Asa Moshe Rabbeinu. He made Moshe, this, this creation called Moshe Rabbeinu, Rabban Shil Kol Ushlecho, and he sent him. Why did he send him? Well, if you look in the Torah, he sent him in order to be able to get them out of Mitzrayim. That was the reason why he was hired. But that's not what the Rambam is focusing on over here. He's re- focusing on a developing role in Moshe's uh, job description which was not announced to him at the beginning. This was an add-on after Yitziat Mitzrayim. And that's where the Rabbeinu part of Moshe comes in. Because until then, he was Moshe HaGoel, but not Moshe Rabbeinu. Moshe Rabbeinu only comes in with this, and that is, Asa Moshe Rabbeinu, Ushlachon sent him, Lehodi'am derech avodato. To teach them the way to serve God. Why is that important? Because without there being clear prophecy from God to people as to how service must be, we have absolutely no idea how service should be. And anything that we try to figure out is by definition, Abu Dazara. 
Why? Because who said you know? Whatever you know is a human thought, right? And that's where we got, that was the problem right back in the first place, square one with Abraham Avinu. That's what everybody was doing. They were worshiping however it is that they thought they should worship. So we need to hear from HaKadosh Baruch Hu how we worship. That's why the mitzvot are so important. And that's why the mitzvot essentially are acts of love from God to us. Because HaKadosh Baruch Hu is saying, I'm going to provide you ways of connecting with me that are not provided normally. I'm opening and giving you pathways. And these are the mitzvot. And that's the dot. So, so it's beautiful because what Moshe Rabbeinu is saying, and that's what Moshe gives. So what Moshe Rabbeinu is saying in Barim here, he's saying, HaKadosh Baruch Hu came to us with an esh dot in his arms, with an esh dot in his right hand. Yeah? And what is that esh dot? The mitzvot. And why the mitzvot? To give them access to him. So beautiful, right? This is what dot is meant to. This is what the dot is. Okay. Now, what I will I will suggest you you know you 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 bring to your attention is the following. Everything that we know, I I I would say I say everything, it's a bit sweeping, but it's not far off, right? Everything that we know about our Jewish lives and our Jewish observance, for all intents and purposes, is a construct of the Hachamim. It's not the direct dot Moshe. And even the dot Moshe was structured by the Hachamim, behaviorally, right? How it is that we engage with them. So you think about, okay, you know, you ask somebody, what, what is Jewish observance? What does it look like? Right, so tell me, well, start, start me off. Okay, but that's very broad. Give me some nitty gritty details. What does it look like? Okay, keeping Shabbat. Right, so what does keeping Shabbat look like? What does a Shabbat look like? Can you bring me in at the beginning? What's, what's the opening of Shabbat look like? It's remembering. The, uh, so you're just a bunch of people standing there. Okay, we like candles. What else? I want to say, what does it look like? What is, you're saying Shabbat. Okay, so that's, that's passive, right? So I'm not going to work. Sitting down at a table, what are they doing before they eat? Their shul. There's lighting candles, there's songs. What else? Kiddush, right? Yeah? Okay, so let's take those things away. Let's take shul away, kiddush away, candles away, table away, food away, songs away. Let's take all that away, right? Do you still have Shabbat? Yes, right? What do you have? Melachot. Right? And like you say, and even the work thing, that was hachamim. That's chazal. That's not the oraita. Yeah, it's just when you were at work, there were certain things you couldn't do. So chazal just said, like, just keep it all away. Right? Because who knows? You're going to be problems. So imagine a Shabbat in which you had no kiddush, no havdalah, no prayers in synagogue, no candles, certainly no zmirot and things like that. Right? Those are way later. Right? Way later. Yeah, those are not even part of the construct. Those are add-on, you know, decorations. Well, what do you have? Okay, let's try something else. Let's try something else. Right? What, what about like what about Yom Kippur? Right? Everybody knows about Yom Kippur. Right? Okay. Well, what does Yom Kippur look like? Well, we've taken away synagogue, so well, you fast. Yes, that that's that stays. 
That's that was a, that was later, but okay, that's Chazal. Well, it's it's a machloket to be to be to be completely honest. There's a an argument among the Chachamim whether that's a Deoraita or a Derabanan. But even that fact is interesting because it would be dubious. Like, why would there be a question about that? Confession. Confession. Okay. And how does that happen exactly? I mean, is there a set formula for this or? Well, correct, exactly right. 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 You see what I'm doing. I've taken it away. But I haven't taken it away because I'm cruel. I've taken it away because we must imagine. I'm trying to get a, th- a thought experiment going on over here, right? A crude, uh, terribly uh, developed one. But nonetheless, right, what would it look like if the constructions of Chazal that we call Judaism were not there? What? what, what what, so, sorry? So, well, you know, this is hey, more than the Jews of Ketch, Shabbat, Shabbat, the Ketch, the Jews, but if we hadn't had all those. Markers, right, that's not canon, by the way, I'm just saying. Yeah, no, no, but I'm just saying, if yeah. we hadn't had all those markers, then we wouldn't. It's, it's kind of, it's kept us. Right, you're, no, you're, you're probably right. You're probably right. You're probably right, which is only to underline the brilliance of Chazal. Right, but I, I, I'm saying let's not go there yet. Let's. I want to sit. I want to sit in this with you. I want to sit. Hold on. I want to sit in this with you. I want you to really imagine, right? If I were to take these things, if we were to not have these things, what do we have left? I want to do this a little bit with you. Okay. Well, well, bear with me. Bear with me. Bear with me. Bear with me. Because I, it's important for us to imagine it, to realize what it means to take the Judaism part away and what is left. What, and why am I saying this to you? And why am I doing this with you? Because the more you recognize what is Judaism as opposed to Torah, and I'm not, I want to be very clear, I'm not saying that it is separate from Torah. Obviously, Chazal were working within the contexts of Torah in order to be able to establish, establish what we call Judaism. But what we make, the mistake that we make very often is we think that this is the thing. What is Shabbat? If not Kiddush and Habdallah and Tefillah and Beta Knesset and so on and so on, and lighting candles. What is it if not that? What I'm saying is, well, it's not that. It is now because we have Judaism. But if I were to take those things away, what's left? And it is very important to know, sorry, what's left. Why? Because if we don't recognize clearly what's left, we really don't know what we're doing. And we miss it completely. Now, the question is, so what? Right? We're going to answer that too. It's a big issue. Okay, so you get where I'm going with this, right? You get where I'm going with this. What would Kippur be? You'd be fasting. And you shouldn't be doing malacha. That's it. Right? Vidui. There should be, at least, you know, according to, again, if you hold that as the oraita and that's what they did, and the, okay, so they do vidui, however you do vidui, right? Whatever you feel is the appropriate vidui for you. There wasn't standing up and sitting down and standing up and sitting down and five to five prayers in the day and, and, and the repetitions of these lines over and over and over again so that, you know, we drill it in so that you, you know, that wasn't there. So take a look at the next thing on the line. And this is Masichet Barachot Lamed Gima. Amar le Rav Shemin Barabadar Biyohanan. Established for Israel the following. Berachot. Well, think about no berachot, right? Take that out. Okay? 
Tefillot prayers. Take about take Shachrit, Mincha, and Arvit away, and all of the other prayers that we do. And, right? Kiddushot Mehavdalot, take away Kiddush and Havdalah and all of that. Well, that's what they established. And in this line, in this one line, which is in the middle of a discussion, by the way, this is not like a statement. This is in the middle of a discussion about uh, what we do with Havdalah. But in the middle, he's saying, this is what they established. This is Ezra, Betino, Neshek, and This is what they established for us. So imagine taking these things away. What do you have left? It doesn't look like we've got very much left at all. The next question should be, well, what did they do before this? I mean, right. Yeah? Well, that's quite early, isn't it? Yeah. They were also pre-Torah. I know what we're saying, right? What do we say? Let's 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 we're gonna that's good. You're bringing it up, so let's let's pause for a minute and address that because I do think that it is a, misunderstood. I will repeat what you said. The the suggestion was that we should also think about going far back, as far back as our forefathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Yaakov. And so I said, but it's not. It's pre-Torah. She said, yes, but we say, and I was rudely interrupted her and said, I know what we say. What we say is the following. And this is very important, right? The, no, the language here is extremely important. It says that the avot, right? Kiyemu kol mitzvot Torah. That the avot upheld all of the mitzvot of the Torah. It doesn't say asu kol mitzvot Torah. Never does it say that. Never would it say that because they didn't. Yeah, it says kiyimu. They upheld, right? In one other place, there's a different girsa which says shamru, but it doesn't say asu. There is a difference between kiyum and asiya. So, for example, it's used in the Torah. Yeah, uh, we say v'shamru b'nei Israel tashabat. What are the next words? Lasot tashabat. Well, what's the difference? Is it not the same as Shamru Yisrael? When you say, are you Shomer Shabbat, do we not mean? Do you do Shabbat? When I say, do you keep Shabbat, which is essentially what Shomer means, right? Do I not mean, are you doing Shabbat? Well, it's probably what I mean, but it's not an appropriate way to say it. What I should ask people is, are you Ose Shabbat? Because that's a much more direct question. Yeah? So... It says, or, the, or as Moshe Rabbeinu says, right? Okay. So Shmira and Asiya are not the same thing. What is Shmira? To keep, to protect, right? Like a Shomer is a protector, yeah? to protect. What is Asiya? To do. Protecting and doing are not the same. And what it says about the Avot is that they protected or upheld. It doesn't, actually, what it says is kiyumu. Kiyumu means they upheld. What does it mean upheld? They created a situation in which mitzvot could be kept. That's what they did. Kol mitzvot Every single one of them, including the Drabanans. That's what they say, right? They also did the Drabanans. What do you mean the Drabanans? How could they do that? They did a rooftop shilin. For which Chag? For the second day of your... For when? It's, it's, you know, it's, it's ludicrous, right? Of course, that was not done. The question is, what does it mean that they kiyamu? Kiyamu means the, the avot 
live their lives in a way that absolutely upheld and protected every single mitzvah that would ever be given. Because if they didn't, there would be no one to give mitzvah to. It's only because of that that there are mitzvot at all. That's what Chazal means. You have to understand when you read Chazal that you have to, when you see strange things like that, you have to understand the deeper meaning. What is it this thing? So again, so come back to this. What was done? Well, we have to recognize, well, we can't just look at, it, at what was done because if you take all of these things away, well, what is left, really? Okay, so you've got sitting and not doing on Shabbat. Ah, but what I realized is that there was a, an entirely different context the context pre-brachot, tefilot, kedushot, habdalot, and so on and so forth, was a nationalistic structure. There was a capital city, and that's why in the Torah, HaKadosh Baruch Hu says, when I bring you into the land, you will seek out my mikdash. Doesn't tell you where he's going to put it yet, because that, that real estate was not established. Right? We didn't know where it was going to be. David Melech decided and figured that out. But he says, You've heard this over and over? Over and over again in the Torah. You go to the place that will be chosen, to the place that I choose, which ends up being Yerushalayim, right? But we don't know that yet. Yeah. And it says, yeah, Seek out his shechina, seek out God's dwelling place and go there. So what did we do? Three times a year, we left our homes, went up to Yerushalayim. We had to be seen there, and we had to see it. Part of going up to Yerushalayim was to see the grandeur of the Beit HaMikdash, to, be, to feel the, the, the greatness, the, the glory of the Beit HaMikdash. It was meant to impose that feeling to people. We had to stay overnight, right? So there was pilgrimage, right? There, and when we were not there, what were we doing? Well, a huge amount of the mitzvot have to do with the land because we were farmers. So we were masrot and kilaim and maser, all of those kinds of things, right? And of course, we had to be careful about what we ate. So when we slaughtered our animals, we had to make sure not to eat nevila, utrefa, and so on, not to, put, not to cook the meat and milk together and eat it together. So however, whatever, you know, however we look at what the deolite does, those were the things that we did. What was Shabbat? We didn't do Melachah on Shabbat. What did we know was going on? But we knew on Shabbat, korbanot were being brought in the Beit HaMikdash. That every day there was two korbanot brought for the entire nation in the Beit HaMikdash. And there was a delegation from the nation that had a synagogue near the Beit HaMikdash that read each week, each day of the week something in the Torah and so on. We wore tefillin. Yeah, these kinds of things. We, we lived a life as this is how our nation lived on a daily basis. And what was going on in the capital? The service was going on in the capital. Now, when all of that was threatened, right, Chazal realized this entire structure, we take away this entire structure, or if it is taken away from us, well, we're in trouble because we've got a bunch of farmers living in fields out there that are going to find themselves literally floating in the middle of nowhere. And what on earth will hold them and tether them to their national covenant with God? 
the Torah will not be enough because they won't be able to look at this Torah and learn and remember how it is that they keep these mitzvot, not to mention the fact that a good number of the mitzvot are no longer applicable because they're tied to living in the Aretz. So what Chazal say is, we need to create a mobile structure that will give scaffolding to the mitzvot of the Torah. It will be essentially a traveling homeland. That's what Judaism is. And that's what these are. Brachot, filot, kedushot, dalot. That's what these things are. You with me, right? Okay, well, that's beautiful. Okay, I get that. It's beautiful and it's not beautiful. It's beautiful because the hachamim were very concerned about the survival of the people and they actually had an ingenious development. So they write the Talmud, which is a traveling guide. And they have the behaviors, which are traveling structures for the people. And I'll tell you something. It's been pretty significant for 2,000 years. It's, uh, proof is in the pudding, as they say. Right? I mean, no, it's, it's, it's in no small part. has definitely held the people together. And the truth of the matter is, and I say this uh, a bit brazenly, those who have survived over the 2,000 years are those who have been faithful to keeping the structure. Overwhelmingly. Overwhelming. Good. Okay. So the question is, what's the downside? Well, the downside is this. Remember that what we have at Sinai is what we call an eshdat. I mean, this is a fiery law, right? This is, this is, this is flame, right? This is alive. This is burning. And the last thing in the world that we want to happen to this is for it to become petrified and dead, and stagnant. And when that happens, well, we've lost it. And one can consider, right, one, this is, I'm suggesting, right, one can consider that Chazal incorporated a fail-safe into the religion itself that they created. And that is, that if it ceases to be responsive and alive, and developing, it'll kill you, right? And that's why these, I'm, I'm being a bit exaggerating, but not a lot, right? It'll kill in any number of ways. It could kill your spirit and kill, you know, it could kill, whatever it is, right? And this is the reason why people keep asking me about Yom Tov Sheni. I'm not kidding. It really is. That's the reason. Because there is a feel, right? When there is, there is a drawback, even though it is very preliminary, very early, and there's a heck of a lot left to be done, but there is a drawback to nationhood and a feeling and sense of national manifestation of identity, which there is. Because I can't tell you how many times people make aliyah and after a few months, they come back or they visit or I talk to them or whatever, and I tell them, how's it going? And Somewhere in their response is, it's great, Rabbi, but there's no community. I don't know if you've heard this before. I've heard it many, 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 many times. And you think, well, what on earth? Why do you need a community? You're living in the nation. This is the land. This is what we've been waiting for for all of our lives. And you're stuck in a community? You want a community? I mean, take the prosthetic off. But no. That's all we know. As our Jewish life, we don't know how to be citizens of a nation. 
No Jews live out in the, you know, I would say again, obviously they do, but you know, if a Jew wants to be a dot abiding Jew, they're not living in the countryside. Why do you think that big cities are so well populated with Jews and synagogues and so on? Right? Because you need a community. Why? Because if you're going to be a nation within a nation, if you're going to be able to hold yourself within some foreign environment, you need to be able to create an enclave in which you can do this. It's what we did for 2,000 years, and this was our structure. Hazal gave it to us. Now you go back to become part of the nation, right? You're a citizen in the nation. Well, uh, where's my community? What do you mean, where's your community? <laughs> you have your, uh, so they can track you wherever you go, like some crazy social, you know, uh, police state. Okay, well, that's where you are right now. That's, that's where they are in their development, <laughs> Israel at the moment. They can control everything you do. Fine, but that's where we are. You have a problem with this, so move back. Right? People want to move to Israel and have their life as a Jewish life the way that they did here, which is preposterous. Don't make Aliyah if that's what you want to have. Right? Ah. But it's very important to understand it in this context because that's what's beginning to happen. That's what's beginning to happen. So if we realize this, right? If we realize that this is this is what's going on. What is the downside? Downside is is that religion can tend towards petrification. It can become dogma. It can become pre-tailored solutions. It can become a, a solidified law that is no longer malleable and supple and responsive. And that. As a problem. And then you have the, the golden question, which is not an easy question to answer. And I don't think there's any clear-cut right way to it. And I'll prove that to you. And the question is, what's better? To do away with the religious dogma and behavior or to Accept the evil, you know, I, I use that uh, tongue-in-cheek, right? The, you know, the, the, the necessary evil of having to live in that kind of, you know, somewhat restrictive structure. That's not a clear-cut answer. I mean, Chazal more than once, the Hachamim more than once chose the bindings. And sometimes we accept bindings, even though it is not how it is that even the construct itself was meant to run. We accept the bindings because we realize that if we don't, we will end up flying into the wind and being lost. So on a certain level, the dogmatic elements, which are infuriating and upsetting to many, right, end up being the repositories that hold the spores of the regenerating people. You can make a case against that. Again, it's not a clear-cut thing. But one could say that. And then the question is, to what degree? How restrictive do we become? And when we see throngs of young people leaving because it's become too restrictive, well, should we loosen up a bit? And to what degree do we loosen up? How much is too loose? these These are the questions of our day. Would you fast forward this 2,000 years, and that's what you're dealing with. 
Well, okay, can we have a woman's Megillah reading? Well, yeah, I mean, that's Allah. Okay, fine. Well, how far do we go? You know, we have a women's, do we have partnership in here yet? Well, yeah. Well, yeah. Well, yeah. Yeah. Huh? Not easy question. I mean, is it is it just that it needs to be able to to stick into the the clear halacha guideline? You know, just as long as you can tick the box, it's you know within the boundaries of halacha. I mean, Chazal say things like right? And if you have a place where they're noheg and isur in something, they know that it's mutar according to the law, but they're noheg and isur. At least the chachamim are, but all the people behave that way. You're not allowed to say that it's okay in front of them. Why? Because you start unraveling these things. When do you stop? It's a big issue. A rabbi that I respect very, very much, Shimon Aluf, I spoke with him today. He, he's Iraqi. Right? He's Iraqi origin. And he said, <clears throat> in his opinion, that one of the reasons why Iraqi Jews ha- didn't really end up developing strong communities outside of Baghdad, outside of Iraq, right? They kind of like, you have a few shuls, but not stronghold, because it's because of Benish High. He says the Benish High, and you, anybody who reads the Benish High see very clearly, because throughout the Benish High, this is what the Benish High writes. The Benish High was very influenced by Kabbalah, Kabbalistic thinking. And he wanted all of the Bin Hagim of Baghdad to follow Kabbalistic thought, Kabbalistic law. And he was a very prominent rabbi in Baghdad. He wasn't the chief rabbi. People think he was the chief rabbi. He was not Chacham Bashi. He was just a rabbi. But he was a very well-known rabbi, right, in Baghdad. And he writes in his book, Tihilot La'el, over and over. Praise God, I was able to change the minhag. Praise God, I was able to change the minhag. Praise God, I was able to change the minhag. Change, change, change. And Rabbi Aluf held, he goes, because he changed so much minhag, people go, okay, you can change. You can do this, you can do that, you can do this. And, that. and it started to dislodge the strength of this is what we do, you know, and uh, there's value in that. Okay, but again, there's two sides to that problem. Right? How long do we say and to what do we say this is what we've always done? When is it no longer okay to say that? So I'm going to give you some examples of this. Take a look. Right. So what I'm about to read with you is the law in the religious law. Right. In other words, in Judaism. Right. As Chazal established. Right. It says they established Tefilot. Right. What is the law with regards to prayer? So let's have a look at the law with regards to prayer. First, we're going to see the Rambam tells us what prayer was like. And what he does is beautiful, because what the Rambam does is he actually brings us through the origins of prayer in its, in its uh, uh, biblical presentation, how it developed by the Hachamim when they instituted uh, formal uh, uh, organized prayer, right? And what the laws are. So he says, right? The obligation of this mitzvah, right? So we're going back to the mitzvah of the Torah. What does a mitzvah require? That a person should pray every day and to speak the praise of the Holy One. And after that, ask for what he needs. He does so in supplication and so on. 
And after he does this, he praises God, thanking him for what he's already given him. And what does he say? The last words of that line, right, of that, of that phrase, what does that mean? Yes, each one according to their abilities. Well, that doesn't sound like organized prayer to me, right? He's, he's giving what here? He's giving a template. He's saying, what was the mitzvah? God said, pray once a day, once in 24 hours. But what does pray mean? It means this. You praise God, you ask for what you need, and you thank him and praise him. That's the template. And you do this, each one, according to your ability to do so. How you speak, that's how you talk to God. Right? That's not what we know. But that's the mitzvah. And that's what was done for hundreds of years. That's what was done. Now, and he's only here expanding what the phrase the fikohol means. Ragil means if he was very, he had, he had good oratory skills, right? He had good language skills. Well, he can speak and elaborate, but but if he was not particularly adept at speaking, you speak whatever way you can speak to God, right? So he, today, when a rabbi says, speak to God, right? Or he says, just talk to God. That's not his innovation. It's this. That's what it used to be, right? And it's always there. It's always intact. It never goes away, right? That's what, that's, that's what the core is. And you do this, whatever you want. There's no prescribed times as to when it's okay to speak to God and not okay to speak to God. He doesn't get tired. He's not busy. He can multitask, right? Okay. Also, the number of tefillot. Everybody, you prayed once a day. You prayed 10 times a day. You want to spend all day praying, whatever. That's up to you. There were yesh after the Beit HaMikdash, notice what he says over here. This is all the way down to the time of the Beit HaMikdash. So we're not just talking about Moshe Rabbeinu, right? All the way down to the time of the Mikdash, they would pray in Israel because you had either the Mishkan or Mishkan Shiloh. Or they'd pray facing where the Mikdash was, which is extremely significant because it means that it was oriented towards the Beit HaMikdash, which is the centerpiece of the people. This is how it always was, says the Rambam. From the days of Moshe until Ezra. What's Ezra? The Anshekhness of the Gedola. What's the Anshekhness of the Gedola? Berachot la Medgimah. Anshekhness of the Gedola, Tikduli Yisrael, Berachot, Tutfilot, Tutfilot, right? So it ran like this from Moshe to Ezra until they did this. And then what they did was they made formal religion, organized religion. Now, what was the impetus for this? The first Galut was the impetus for this because they saw, okay, people were thrown out of the land. They got messed up in terms of their language, which is specific to prayer, right? They got messed up in terms of the language. They were speaking Spanglish. You know what Spanglish is? No, only, only Southern Californians know what Spanglish is. Spanglish is a weird mix between Spanish and English, which is a mess, but nonetheless, everybody in Los Angeles speaks it. Okay. They were speaking They wouldn't speak properly. And it says in Nehemiah, they couldn't speak Jewish, right? Which was the, the language of the people. So the Hakamim said, well, let's, let's write it for them. We're going to script the prayer for them. And they do. They script the prayer. And little by little, it got to be more and more formalized. This is one of the reasons why you'll find different nusach. Right, how the Ashkenazim pray, how the Spartan, because even when the Anshikanas did 
script it, they scripted it broadly. They didn't script it particularly. They said, this is what you're supposed to say, these key words. So you look at the Birkat Amazon, for example, of Rebbeinu Sa'ad Yagaon, and it's like, you know, 10 lines. That's not, that's not, uh, why? Because he, he had in there what you have to say. What are the main things you have to say? And it's clear what you have to say. Outside of that, it's just embellishment. Yeah? Okay. Everybody with me so far? We getting lost? No, we're good. Okay. So that's what happens. Okay. Let's see. Oh, I thought I put the rest of the foot of on here. I think I did put it. The rest of the foot of on here. Yes. Okay, so now go, go if I can ask you, go to, skip a page, and go to, see where it says, Mishneh Torah Al-Chot Tefillah Berkat Kohanim. Okay, so what ended up happening? Chazal structured three times a day, structured the scripting of the words, the words were now formal, the times were formal, the behaviors were formal, Standing, sitting, bowing, all of this was all scripted. Everything was structured and, and formal. And that meant that no matter where you go, you're going to see this. And the truth of the matter is, no matter where you go, you will see this. You may not know, you may not understand their pronunciation. There may be some words that are off and so on. But you go into any synagogue anywhere in the world and you're going to know, okay, this is the Amida. Okay, this is Shachrit, Mincha, Arvit, right? You know what it is? That's Chazal. That's Judaism, right? That's what they created. Now. In this, interestingly, right, I'll show you why I'm showing you this, is a law in prayer till today. This is the law in prayer. And that is this, that you have to pray with what we call kavanah. And the Rambam says, kavanah talev ketzad. What do we mean by kavanah? He says, kol tefillah she'ena bekavanah ena tefillah. Any prayer, quote unquote, that is not with kavanah is not a prayer. Right? So he doesn't say it's a poor prayer. It's a low grade prayer. He says, it simply is not prayer. It doesn't, no longer is considered prayer. You need kavanah in order for a prayer to be considered prayer. And what is kavanah? At first he says, now, if you do pray without kavanah, the law on the books is that if you pray without kavanah, since it's not a prayer, you need to do it again with kavanah. Matzama, therefore, the following laws. Now, if you find that you are not settled in your mind and you're having a tremendous difficulty in achieving palel, it is prohibited for you to pray. You may not pray. Not you shouldn't pray. You're not allowed to pray. Yeah? Why? Because how dare one stand before God and attempt to speak to God when you're not paying attention at all to what it is that you're saying or focusing your mind on the, on the conversation? It's, it's an affront. So you're not allowed. Until your mind can be settled again. Therefore, a person's been traveling, and he's tired, or he's got his mind concerned on the lost luggage or whatever it is that there might be going on. He's not allowed to pray until his mind settles. Indeed, the Hachamim said, you know, it's probably a good idea to take three days after you travel. If you travel, you shouldn't pray for three days. Wait till you get used to the place, where you know where you're going, uh, what you're bearing. You shouldn't pray there. This is halakha. This is not in some archaic strain. This is halakha till today. It's halakha. You ask what's going on, what happened. 
Then he says, what is Kavanah? And he explains what Kavanah is, which I'm not going to get into now, but you can read it, right? He says, you have to clear your mind, stand before Shekhinah, and so on and so on. Okay. So now you look 500 years later. This is the law of Tefillah after Judaism has been established, right? So you're not supposed to say Minha if your mind is not clear. You're not supposed to say Shachrit if your mind, whatever. But we do. Like, in other words, we all know, uh, I got to have mincha, right? I got to, really, okay, right? You know, look quite, you know, perturbed and, uh, you know, preoccupied. But we all do. We do it. We do it every day. We do it three times a day. And most of the time we do it without kavanah. So we're transgressing something. It's not just no harm, no foul, as they say in the States, right? It's, there's a transgression. Why are we allowed to make this transgression? And not only are we allowed to make this transgression, we're encouraged to do it. Right? People encourage us to pray and transgress when we do this. It's all because of Maharam Ramberg. Because of Maharam Ramberg. What did Maharam Ramberg say? This is now the Bet Yosef, right? This is the tour, actually. Yeah? Tour, Biakob Alaturi. He says, in the underlying place, after he talks about Kabana and so on and so forth, and he basically goes over the Rambam's Halachot, he says, Vikatav Haram Meratberg. Maram Rodberg says, "En anu nizharin ata bechol zeh." We no longer are careful about this. In all of this, the whole thing, we threw it all out. Why? Because we just don't know how to have kavana. Full stop. We just don't do it anymore. Now that's a tragedy, right? That's a. It's just. I think they call it a shanda, right? It's a disaster. Because look what's happened. So now here's the question. What decision did Maharam Rottenberg say? And this is not necessarily his own personal decision. He's simply saying it out loud that what we do today is we disregard this prohibition. We're not careful about it. We do it anyway. And now it's given an authority. And it was codified in Shohan Aruch. Take a look at the Shohan Aruch. Maran, Rabbi Yosef Karo, the Muhammad. He writes explicitly, He literally, word for word, Hoskins, the Maram Rottenberg. Which is why you will have rabbis galore and, uh, you know, people telling, encouraging their children, you know, get to, did you get to davening? It's only because of Maram Rottenberg. Otherwise, it would be a problem to encourage people to pray when they're not able to pray. So this is where it comes. And what was the issue here? Well, what was the alternative? Right, you're saying people weren't turning up to that. Right. So what they were worried about was a very serious problem. Tefillah itself would disappear. And nobody would know anymore what tefillah was or how to do it. So what's the question? The question is, do you engage in the scaffolding and structures, even though they are soulless and empty? Or do you just do away with it? And these these are issues that have run throughout all of our history. The writing of the Mishnah was the exact same thing. Shouldn't have been written. It was a sacrilege to write. 
Right? No? Why, why are you making that? No, you don't know this? Right? Chazal, when they put down the Mishnah, says they, they have a pasuk that they based the writing of the Mishnah. You know, it was Torah Shabbal Peh. You're not supposed to write Torah Shabbal Peh for the masses to study from. It was okay to have your own personal notebooks. You weren't allowed to write oral law. And even when they wrote it, they wrote it in tremendous brevity. I mean, the Mishnah is not a huge, but they wrote it down and it was sacrilege. And they the pasuk that they used to to talk about their writing of it was et la'asot la'ashem heferu toratech. The normal reading of that pasuk is it's time to do for God, right? To act for God because they were defiling your Torah. So how did Chazal read it? They had a different reading of it. They said it's time to act for God and let's defile his Torah. And we need to do, do something that's not allowed to be done in order to be able to uphold the entire structure. And that's precisely what this is. What the Maram Rottenberg is saying is the same way we wrote the Mishnah, we have to pray without Kavanah. <laughs> right? But these are the difficult, these are very uncomfortable questions. Why? Because you re- once you look at the, the wiring here, which we usually try to keep away from you, yeah, is you, you, you realize what it is that's going on. And, and the tragedy is, right, what, what, sh- what we want to be done, what ultimately should be done, which is why it's included in the halachot, right, is what we want is for people to try to pray with kavanah. And to realize that if you pray without kavanah, it's not a prayer, but we go through the motions anyway. And that's been lost. Because we think prayer is what we do, which it isn't. And then it's don't tell that to people. Right? Don't, don't tell them. Because right? that will also, right? what will that do? So what I'm going to say at this point is, welcome to Galut. Because this is what happens, right? You can't, nor did the Hachamim ever imagine that they would create something that would be Galut-proof. Because then they would be besting God. And essentially, abrogating the covenant. Because if they say, we don't need what we had, we can do it this way, which, and I will say this, many observant Jews do. They genuinely believe that we just need to be able to get the religion to be stronger. I, mean, I can't tell you how many times you know, in New York I would hear rabbis praising uh, people saying they love the religion. I knew what they meant, but the language bothered me. I would prefer they say they love Torah, but they say they love the religion. And there's an issue there. Yeah, It's okay to adore Judaism, but it's very problematic to think, and we fall into this very quickly, that Judaism can replace the Brit and the land, and Torah in its context, as our national core text and mitzvah. Are you with me? So we always risk. This is a risk. The writing of Mishnah is a risk. There's risk. There's a lot of risk that we take, and we do it in order to be able to spackle, you know, to like, you know, seal as much as we can the cracks in the structure that Chazal built for us to be able to hold us in Galut. But Galut cannot be the new way of being the nation of Israel in this world, even if it is 2,000 years. It just can't be. 
And what we're beginning to see more today than ever before is its failure. And we don't want to speak it, but we are. We're beginning to see it's a slow, it's like the Titanic, right? It takes hours to sink, right? So the same thing, it takes year, years and years and years and years and years. But we are seeing the cracks. We are definitely seeing the, these big problems. So when people are saying, how are we going to get people back to shul? Well, there's an assumption in that, isn't there? There's an assumption that we will. And we will replenish and reinstate and reinvigorate what we once had. Maybe. It's, I'm not saying that it's not possible. And I'm not saying that it's not something that, you know, is a noble endeavor. But is that all there is? Is there not other alternatives? Is there nothing else that we should be thinking? Well, I don't know. All I'm seeing is putting this before you and saying that there's more there than we're talking about. Very much important to see that, right? So I'll just close out and I'll hear whatever, uh, you know, questions you have. I see that it's 930. There's a beautiful Midrash, which I didn't put on your pages. The Midrash says that the reason we lost the Beit HaMikdash is because Ma'asu B'nai Israel, B'nai Israel were disgusted with the Beit HaMikdash, with the land, and with the Melech, with Mashiach, right? With the, and they will not get those things back until until they ask for them. They, they, they realize that they need to have them back. And what will, the only way to be able to need to have those things back is to realize that there are no alternatives. Right? So the communities, you know, you, you, please God, all of our communities should live and be well and strong and so on and so forth. But if you look at Jewish history, there were communities that lived double ours, right? You're talking about British Jewry, right? They've been here over 300 years in recent, you know, that's before the, the last of yeah. Babylonia, they were there for 600 years. Nothing. Is, it's gone. Spain, all of Europe, all of it, it's gone. Great, amazing, wonderful communities have lived and flourished and bright and died. And we believe that we're going to be the ones that go on forever and ever and ever. And we say that because we don't live on the continent. <laughs> I, mean, I hate to tell you, I mean, I travel in Europe and, you know, they're holding on for dear life everywhere. And, and I don't say this. I, I know that these are hard things to say. I do. I recognize these are hard things to say. And I don't say this. I want to be very, very clear. I don't see this. I say this without love for my people and compassion and wishing that, please, God, everybody should be able to be strong Jews wherever it is that they find themselves without question. That is my deepest heartfelt desire, honestly. But there are things that we must recognize are going on around us. And I'm not even suggesting what is it we do, but the recognition in and of itself is important. I'm not saying let's write a strategic plan. What I'm saying is just see what is happening, what is going on, and understand it in a bit of a broader context and where it's coming from and why. And when they start to complain in you know, cities in Europe, for example, that all of their young ones are moving to Israel, well, worse things have happened. Right. Okay. We'll end there. I don't know what we do from here, Rabbi.
If if there's time for question, I don't know if that's appropriate. I don't want to. Oh, we are. We're here to ten. Okay. Right. So I'm happy to take one. Yes, so I'm going to say now that all of all of the Divrei Torah Shvirufuachlema, Baruch ben Moshe, Eliyahu ben Naoma, Shulamid Batlea and Batia Batlea. Iratzon she shalachem Rufuachlema Rufuati Nefesh Rufuat Aguf Mitoch Shakor Hole Israel Chen Iratzon Amen. Okay. Yes. I would say that probably it's Joel Kippur Shabbat Shalom. Yeah. 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 I would say that probably a majority of Jews today, unfortunately, don't study Torah regularly, don't go to shul or do to filler, but see themselves as cultural Jews. So at least all of this has kept them vaguely within the framework, whether that's, oh, I, you know, like light, lights on Shabbat, or I, I follow certain aspects of it. So obviously, this isn't perhaps the best situation but would you say it's at least kept them in the framework of still knowing they're Jewish, still looking to carry certain parts on? Or would you say, because lots of Jews have moved to a pure cultural Judaism, that's not the right path? I don't know. Yeah. There are two ways to answer that. I mean, one is in terms of, you know, are they keeping the Brit and the mitzvot and so on and so forth in the broader terms? Or, you know, you're ta- you're asking more in terms of functional terms, right? So, that all depends. Usually, if it's not something that is instilled in its fullness into a family, it holds for a generation. And if the next generation does less, by two or three generations, it's over. It's over. I mean, I've seen this in my own life, and I'm 47 years old. Right? I've seen it many, many times, more than once. So the the, the picking... And the choosing of I will do this and accommodate this and keep this and not that and so on and so forth. I get it. I I understand, you know, do what you can and and all of that for that individual person. But if it's a question of I want my children to be Jewish and my grandchildren to be Jewish, which majority of people are not able to think that far. They can't even imagine that that far until they actually see them and then it's too late. Right. Uh, It doesn't work. It just doesn't work. I mean, you know, I would never put my money on that. Maybe there's a fluke and what happens, a second generation, watered down. You know how many people I've met that keep absolutely nothing and say my father was a rabbi or my grandfather was a rabbi? I mean, I know in this country, there's one person I know whose grandfather I, whose grandfather was one of the greatest Talmidei HaChamim of Yerushalayim. I mean, one of the greatest. He was the mentor of the greatest rabbis of the generation. And his grandson looks like him. That's the great. He looks like knows and keeps zero. Uh, so I've, I've seen it many, many, many times. And that is, it will end with him. It will end with him. There, it's, it's over. Maharam in Rottenberg is, it was about 60 or 70 years after Rambam. Maharam in Rottenberg was after after Ram, after Rambam, um, it's unusual to find that one Rav says something and nobody disagrees with it. Um, in, in but it, in this particular case, it seems to. So it, again, it wasn't that the Maharam Rottenberg was saying, "I believe we should do this." 
The Maram Rattenberg was simply giving giving legal uh, uh, credence to it, right? It's what people were doing. He says again. He says, "Today we don't we're not careful with this anymore." So all he was doing was stating it in his legal book, right? He wasn't saying, "I believe we should do this now." He was saying, "This is just what people do now." It's deteriorated to the point that, and if we don't uh, acknowledge it and and legalize it, <laughs> basically, it's gonna things will fall apart. I mean, it's, basically, he was saying this is a battle we can't fight. Basically, what he's saying, yeah. And everybody acknowledged that because it was going on for all of them as well. Um, do you think that that um, I guess the Torah, as we or Judaism, as we live it, as we've lived it in in the diaspora, works better when we're living in the shtetls, when we're you know under oppression, more than when we're a free, emancipated people. It's an excellent question. That's an excellent question. There are perks to the ghetto in Shtetl, but there are also bad, down, there are also uh, uh, detracting elements and negatives. So the perks are is that you can't afford not to. <laughs> right? There aren't really there there are not many choices. You do what you do and you hold, and that's it. You know, I mean, it's, it's not a lot of choices. But it's also tremendously restrictive. Because it hampers even the robust elements of the dot, right, of the religious life that could be had in the world, right, that should be part of the world that one can't experience. So you know, there's like if you look at the if you look at Spain, right, in the quote unquote golden age, they weren't in shtetls and, uh, and and ghettos and things like that. I mean, today for tourists, they have to put some kind of markers as to where they think Jews live. But the Jews lived all over the place. They lived with everybody. They weren't Jewish. Yet. So uh, there's value to being able to live fully and completely. But at the same time, there's bigger risk. Yeah. Although, right, the life in the shtetl backfired when the enlightenment came around, right? So it was almost like a pressure cooker. It was being held, being held, being held, being held, being held. And then when it, the lid was opened off, it just blew apart. Whereas when they were living in a more integrated life, yes, there was intermarriage and, you know, and, and dilution, but it wasn't as shock, shocking to the system, yeah, as, as it was anyway. There's a concept that the Jews, the Jewish people, were put into Galut in order to bring things out of Galut and bring them, integrate them back into the. So, is it is it possible that a certain amount of assimilation and even losing a few Jews along the way is healthy for the Jewish people as a whole? I mean, I don't know if I would say the word use the word healthy. And I think that you're marrying to, perhaps marrying two ideas, right? So the concept that there is a value to Galut, right? Galut is not just a penalty box, 
right? It's just, you know, go, go sit in the corner and, you know, to, there's, it's meant to be productive. Yeah. It's meant to be learning. It's a learning experience, right? You go out and learn how things are done out in the world because it's not working for you. So go see how it looks when it does work and incorporate that and bring that back, right? So, so I've said many times that, that the Jewish people are, or the nation of Israel is a repository, right, for these things that go on in the world that are probably dead and gone in many parts of the world but live in us nonetheless, right? So th- there's, there, that's one part of it. I think that, th- that th- there is a health element to it, right? It certainly helps to be able to make the Jewish people robust and grow and develop and, you know, okay, so we have to, to, to learn. The losing a few Jews along the way, first of all, it's not a few. It's a lot, right? I mean, we've had profound levels of attrition in our people, which is heartbreaking and devastating. We lost 10 tribes. We've lost millions and millions and millions of our people in the most horrific ways. Yeah, there's no, there's no, there's no, there's no question about the tragedy and, and devastation that all of us should feel about that. Uh, there is a there is these you know there's language in the Navi about this right which is also very very heartbreaking where Kadosh Baruch Hu says to Navi I'll bring back whatever's left right Sherit this this whole thing of Sherit Israel right that we hear Sherit Israel is, is a very sad term it's a very very sad and heartbreaking term but yes I mean you know when you go through the arduous journey of two thousand years of 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 persecution and, and aimed destruction and we come out as we have in an, it in and of itself is a miracle you know that we even have this sharit but it is a sharit you know and you know I'm not going to get into kind of the philosophical and theological uh, qualifications as to you know why and how and who and so on and so forth because I think it's more complex than most people give it credence but at the end of the day What's left is what holds, you know, and what's 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 distilled and come through. So it's very very hard. It's very hard to be able to know, you know, how how do we look at ourselves today? It's a sherit. That's how Kadosh Baruch Hu calls it. It's a sherit. It's what's left. It's not qualified beyond that. And so uh, it's sad that that's what ends up coming back. But you know, given the arduous journey, we didn't expect to be able to remain fully one hundred percent intact. Yeah. Okay. Good. A pleasure. And again, thank you on behalf of uh, the Mount of Fear and Dhamma for taking your time tonight and for the next two weeks. Hope to see everybody back again next week. Okay. Thank you uh, so much, everyone, for coming. And uh, join us uh, for next week, Monday, for the continuation. We're doing Bitachon and Ishtad Lut. And uh, stay in touch for all the awesome things we're doing. And thank you, Chacham. Have a good night.